Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Governors in New England are talking about jobs and how much those workers get paid. The 21st century workplace also means moving to a $15 minimum wage. But not everyone agrees. Then businesses begin to look, well, should I cut back on hours? Should I cut back on positions? How can I do things differently so that I'm not paying more money? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at minimum wage in politics and in practice. And what would a shift to 100% renewable energy look like? We'll visit a town that's trying to find out. If we can get this platform and these things up and running here and it becomes replicated, which is our fervent hope, then New Hampshire could be the leader in this area in a, a short number of years. Plus, we'll go to a place that's saving both horses and human lives. Some of them are broken, yet they can recover. And they can go on to wonderful, happy, productive lives. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The fight for a minimum wage that's closer to a living wage has been playing out for decades. But we're going to dig into this issue this week as it's increasingly become the topic of campaign speeches and statehouse debates across our region. This latest battle really started in February of 2014 in the White House with this speech by President Barack Obama. Now, it was one year ago today, one year ago today, that I first asked Congress to raise the federal minimum wage. A federal minimum wage that in real terms is worth about 20% less than it was when Ronald Reagan took office. For reference, the federal minimum when Reagan took office was $3.10 per hour. By the time of Obama's speech, it had gotten up to only $7.25. Obama used that speech to announce an executive order requiring federal contractors to pay employees at least $10.10 an hour, and he used it to push Congress to act. There's a bill right now in front of both the House and the Senate that would boost America's minimum wage to $10.10 an hour, just like I'm doing with this executive action. It's easy to remember. 10-10. But Congress didn't do anything, and the federal minimum has stayed at seven twenty-five ever since. Four New England states, Connecticut, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, did listen to Obama, though. They acted almost immediately with legislation. A few years later, Maine voters approved a plan to raise the state's minimum. That's left New Hampshire as the only New England state that still follows the federal rate. More on that in a minute. The start of 2019 meant more workers around our region saw automatic increases that were built in by legislation. It also meant new governors like Ned Lamont in Connecticut came into office. In his State of the State address, Lamont addressed the fact that Connecticut's been at 10-10 for a few years now, and he hopes to change that. The 21st century workplace also means moving to a $15 minimum wage. Massachusetts already is moving to a $15 an hour wage over the next few years, Will neighboring Connecticut join them soon? We asked Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. 
Mark, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. So how realistic is the plan to move to a $15 an hour minimum wage in Connecticut? It's very realistic. It's not a question of if, but when. $15 will be adopted at some point. The question is, what will be the effective date? The way the states do these things is, you know, they grab attention with that big number. It used to be 1010 was the magic number that Barack Obama put forth. Now it's $15. And the question is, when you pass a bill to go there, it's usually done in steps, such as is the case in Massachusetts. Massachusetts will get there in 2023. And that is the target that progressives in the Connecticut General Assembly have also adopted. It wasn't that long ago, though, in the state when Barack Obama was talking about 1010 that many people, including the then governor at the time, said, whoa, whoa, slow things down. It's way too fast for Connecticut. Well, yes, uh, that's that's very true. And Connecticut was the first state in the country to adopt a 1010 minimum wage in statute. By the time it took effect, it finally got to 1010 on January 1st of 2017. There were other states that had already surpassed Connecticut. So what exactly has to happen in the Connecticut legislature and in the political landscape of the state for this to happen in, as Ned Lamont says, in a responsible way over time? Well, the support of the governor obviously is very important, but perhaps more important is the fact that Democrats uh, won stronger majorities, a stronger majority in the House and won a majority in the Senate, which, of course, had had an 1818 tie for the last two years. And the last time that uh, Connecticut tried to raise the minimum wage, it all came down to a single state senator who was a fiscally conservative Democrat who just would not budge. So it it didn't go anywhere. Now, instead of an 1818 tie in which every Democrat is a king or a queen when it comes to uh, issues of any great import, they have a significant majority. And that should be enough to adopt a minimum wage increase law this year. How much does the fact that neighboring Massachusetts already put this plan in place a few years ago to get to $15 over the course of time, how, how big a role does that play in the Connecticut state legislature that neighboring states are already heading there? That plays a huge role. Massachusetts is already there. New York in New York City for larger employers they're already at $15 and much of the rest of the state will get there on a timetable that's already been adopted in law Massachusetts same thing Massachusetts law is the law that Connecticut is looking to follow Rhode Island's a little bit behind their their minimum wage is lower uh and they do not have anything that's on the books that would get to 15 in coming years. But, you know, New York, Massachusetts, uh, those, are ben- those are reasonable benchmarks for Connecticut. Mark Pazniokas is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mayor. Thanks for joining us, Mark. My pleasure. And Connecticut might not be the only state whose legislature will be looking at raising the minimum wage in 2019. Vermont's minimum is already tied to the Consumer Price Index, which means it goes up a little every year. Right now, it stands at 1078. Bills to raise the wage to $15 an hour have been vetoed by the state's Republican governor, Phil Scott. But this year, the legislature has a strong Democratic majority and the chance to override any veto. Bob Kinzel, senior political reporter for VPR, joins us now. Bob, welcome back to Next. John, it's great to be here. Why don't you explain to us first how Vermont's minimum wage law came to be? When did it get set? 
Well, it really changed in 2006, and that's when the Vermont minimum wage was $7.25 an hour, and lawmakers passed a bill to index the wage rate in the future, and this was done in part to make it unnecessary for the legislature to address this issue every couple of years. A lot of lawmakers just got tired of dealing with it. So the index is the consumer price index, or 5%, whichever is smaller. So since 2006, the minimum wage in Vermont has gone up, you know, roughly 20 cents an hour each year, although there was one year where it didn't go up at all. So in 2018, the rate had risen to $10.50 an hour. In 2019, with that index, it's $10.78 an hour, and a bill was just introduced this week that would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour over a five-year period, and then would index the rate after 2024. So before we get to the chances for that bill, I want to go back to the law that you have right now. It's funny you bring up how lawmakers thought they handled this in the past because uh, Governor Scott, Phil Scott, in a debate last year with a Democratic candidate for governor, Christine Hallquist, was asked about the minimum wage, asked about his view on it rising again, perhaps to uh, $15. And here's what he had to say. When I was in the Senate, We passed a minimum wage increase. I remember that distinctly. And I remember somebody getting up on the floor and saying, if we pass this minimum wage, if we increase the minimum wage right now with a cost of living increase, we'll never have to have this debate again. Well, here we are. We're having the debate again. So why are we having the debate again? Why a move to $15? Well, I think a lot of people feel that uh, wages in Vermont have really stagnated over the last 10 or 20 years and that there should be a living wage. We hear that phrase a lot at the state house, And so some folks are looking at a living wage and thinking at the bare minimum it would be $15 an hour. I think some people feel it ought to be $18 or $20 an hour, but at least it's a start towards that concept of a living wage. What are the chances of a $15 an hour bill getting past this legislative session? I think the chances, John, are very, very good. There's strong support for it in the Senate. It easily passed in that chamber last year. It also passed in the House. Governor Phil Scott vetoed that bill. The Democrats were unable to override that veto. Now, one of the concerns that some members have with this new bill is that some people who currently receive state benefits, things like child care credits and other human service benefits, might find themselves ineligible for those programs with a higher minimum wage because now they're making too much money to qualify for these benefits. So this legislation addresses this concern by indexing these income benefit levels to inflation so that some people don't end up being in worse shape with a higher minimum wage. New Hampshire is going through this same debate right now, but on a different level. They still have the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. I'm wondering how much people in Vermont think about or talk about what's happening across the river in New Hampshire, whether or not there's a consideration that they either need to be close to what New Hampshire's doing, or are they willing to go in a much different direction than a New Hampshire, which has uh, traditionally not wanted to have any sort of a, a state minimum wage? Oh, I think you raised a very important point that the governor also raises, and a lot of lawmakers along the Connecticut River Valley would say, how can Vermont have a $15 minimum wage and New Hampshire is at $7.25? What is that going to do to businesses along the Connecticut River border? And that's another reason why the governor would say, let's defeat this legislation. 
Bob Kinzel reports on the state legislature in Vermont, and he is also a host at Vermont Public Radio. Bob, thanks as always so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. In New Hampshire, lawmakers have introduced a bill that would raise the minimum to $9.50, and that has raised big concerns for many business owners in the state. Here's Bruce Berkey, New Hampshire's state director of the National Federation of Independent Business, telling host Laura Canoy on NHPR's morning show The Exchange about why he sees a minimum wage increase as bad for workers. The rate is seven twenty-five today. The effective rate might be at a... Uh a local skier, it might be eight fifty or nine, and so if it's raised to twelve, then that person who was making twelve at that ski area, and 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 the parking lot attendant who had been at eight fifty is now making twelve, then the person who had been making twelve before the increase is going to say, "Hmm, I want thirteen or fourteen or fifteen, and and all the way up the line, that's going to have an impact on that business's uh, operating costs, and so you have that that compression." Um, then businesses begin to look, well, should I cut back on hours? Should I cut back on positions? How can I do things differently so that I'm not uh, paying more money? I mean, yeah, so I've heard that argument before. I mean, I think, so that's true up to a point. That's James Mile, policy analyst with the Maine Center for Economic Policy. We called him up to learn more about the economic effects of a rise in the state's minimum wage. Maine voters approved an $11 wage for this year. That'll go up to $12 in 2020. Actually, one of the good things about minimum wage increases is that it doesn't just help folks who are making minimum wage because it does tend to lift wages just above the minimum wage. But that effect really tapers off pretty quickly. If your minimum wage was you know, $7.25, folks who are making $8, $9, $10 an hour would expect to raise as well. Um, but you're not going to get folks who are making $20 an hour or folks who are making $50 or $100 an hour. You know, those folks typically don't see wages increases as a result of the minimum wage. You know, it's not the case that it increases wages across the board and doesn't sort of cause all business costs to go up. And as I say, sort of what we see is that you know, businesses actually tend to recoup some of these increased labor costs through uh, more money circulating in the economy and just sort of better performance out of their employees. His report showed that increasing the minimum wage had a big effect on the number of kids in poverty. So what we found is that between 2016 and 2017, about 10,000 Maine children were lifted out of poverty. And from all the different angles that we looked at, it seems like the minimum wage played a really big role in that. You know, this increase in income for low-income Mainers was something that wasn't replicated at the regional level um, or at the national level. So it's something that was particular to Maine. And it was so out of the ordinary that it seems like the minimum wage had a big role to play in that. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that when kids in low-income families, you know, it only takes a small increase in the annual income for them to see real benefits like doing better in school, just having better nutrition and generally having better life outcomes. But what about employment? The worry is that a higher minimum means workers might get laid off or have their hours cut. We're continuing to see sort of employment growth in Maine, and we're seeing more people enter or stay in the labor force, which are all good things. You know, Maine has a pretty tight labor market, and so the the fact that more folks are working is a good thing for business. Um, And as far as we can tell, you know, we looked at sort of wages and hours for folks who um, didn't have a college degree, you know, folks who are more likely to be working minimum wage. And for those in particular, we saw that either folks with no college degree or even folks with no high school diploma, you know, we weren't seeing big cutbacks in hours for those groups um, between 2016 and 2017. Um, And one of the reasons is that 
you know, we know that when um, people are paid fairly for the work that they do, it actually can save businesses money through reduced turnover costs and increased productivity. And, you know, those folks who are getting more money in their paychecks are also going right out and spending it often at local businesses. It's not only states who are raising minimum wages. In fact, more private companies are making the move, too, including big employers in our region. Amazon announced in October that it will enact a $15 minimum wage across the company. Costco started to pay its workers a $14 minimum back in June. One more piece of big news from this week. A federal judge has ruled that the Trump administration can't include a question about an individual's citizenship on the 2020 census. Back in April, we spoke with Sam Adler-Bell, a senior policy associate at the Century Foundation. He'd written an article for The Intercept about the dress rehearsal for the 2020 census that took place in Providence County, Rhode Island. He described to us the fear that many immigrant communities are currently living in and how this affects accurate counts on the census. We do know that we're in a particularly contentious um, political environment right now. I mean, that's obvious to us, but the Census Bureau itself has conducted qualitative research um, in immigrant communities about their willingness to fill out the census form. Um, That was done in 2017, and they found unprecedentedly high um, fears, confusion. Um, People are are getting the message and giving the message to each other. If somebody knocks on your door, do not open the door. Um, if there's a, you know, if somebody asks you to fill out a form, don't fill out that form. I mean, that's the that's the message that the Census Bureau itself was hearing from immigrant communities, and that was before the it was certain that the citizenship question was going to be on the form. Um, one, you know, telling anecdote that I found in my reporting um, was that during that 2017 survey, an enumerator walked up to a group of mobile homes that were being occupied by uh, Hispanic immigrant families. They knocked on the door. They could hear that there were people inside, but they didn't come to the door. They walked away, and they left some information at some different, some different doors and decided, I'll go back and see. Um, and when they came back, that mobile home was being driven away um, by the people who lived there. They literally drove their home away um, to avoid having to answer questions from a government official. The federal judge is ruling this week that the administration can't include the citizenship question on the census is just the start of a legal debate over the issue, with the potential of it getting all the way to the Supreme Court. Why does it matter if questions about citizenship are included on the census? Well, Sam Adler-Bell told us that every year there usually is an undercount in minority and immigrant communities, and a census that includes a question about citizenship status could exacerbate this problem. And the consequences of an undercount means that all of those communities are going to be underserved by, you know, federal uh, money that should be going to them at higher rates. And as well, they're going to be denied political representation they would get under the census otherwise. To hear our full conversation and find links to more reporting about this issue, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll travel to a place that's saving both horses and humans. But first, the cost of going renewable. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming.
A recent boom in renewable energy around New England is unquestionably good for the region's greenhouse gas footprint, but it's meant a shift for early adopters who bank on the value of renewable energy credits. This market's been a bonanza for some utilities, but now with more renewables, these credits are dropping in value. VPR's John Dillon brings us the story of a small Vermont utility that's been caught up in this shift, and it's led to higher rates for customers. Think of renewable energy credits as one slice of a renewable project. But we're not talking about the actual electricity the solar or wind plant produces. I'll let Maria Fisher, an economics analyst with the State Department of Public Service, explain. When energy is generated by a renewable resource, it generates a megawatt hour of energy and then also an environmental attribute. And that environmental attribute is what we call a REC or a renewable energy credit. Environmental attribute, remember that phrase. The fact those electrons were produced renewably without generating greenhouse gases, for example, has value itself in energy markets. Utilities in Massachusetts and Connecticut, where there's a big need for power but less ability to generate renewable energy, buy these credits. They use these environmental attributes to satisfy state requirements that a certain percentage of their energy portfolio come from greener sources. The credit sales have been a bonanza over the years for Washington Electric Co-op, a small member-owned utility based in East Montpelier. The co-op sells the credits from a wind project in Sheffield and landfill gas generators in Coventry. But the price for renewable energy credits, known as RECs, has dropped precipitously, and now the co-op's ratepayers will see the impact in their bills. It's a classic supply-demand situation. Patty Richards is the co-op's general manager. We have more supply in terms of wind projects, hydro projects, solar projects, anybody selling into the REC market. We have too much supply, and the demand has dropped off across New England. When the renewable credit market crashed, REC revenue for the utility declined by about a million dollars from 2017 to 2018. That meant the co-op had to raise rates. Co-op members will see a nearly 5.5% rate increase starting in January. Richard says she hopes the market recovers, and that could happen if states like Massachusetts and Connecticut boost the renewable requirement for their utilities. But she worries what will happen if prices stay low. Well, I mean, it's definitely a concern. That it's gonna, what it's going to translate into is rate increases. Because the more the REC prices stay low, the longer that sustains itself, then it will continue to put price, upward pressure on rates. Predicting the REC market, like predicting any market, is tough, especially when the market can be affected by a change in one state's energy policy. Yet prices could indeed stay low. Kevin Jones is director of the Vermont Law School's Institute for Energy and the Environment. He says REC prices essentially are pegged to the cost difference between conventional generation, such as a natural gas-fired power plant, and the cost of a renewable resource, such as a wind turbine. The cost of generating those green, renewable electrons is declining. And while natural gas prices have stayed low, the cost of, of wind and solar has dropped dramatically in recent years. In addition, the larger states are participating. Both Mass and Connecticut have done significant renewable procurements in recent years. That means even more supply and less demand for RECs. Vermont utilities and their ratepayers could feel the impact of this market upheaval. 
Maria Fisher, the analyst with the Department of Public Service, says rec prices have slumped from a high of around $60 a megawatt hour five years ago to a low of around $10. 100,000 recs for supply that's sold at $60 brings in $6 million in a year. And now that it is down to $10, for example, that's $1 million. And so for a smaller utility, that's a very significant impact. There are upsides to all this. First, more renewable projects are being built, and that's good if you want to cut greenhouse gases. And second, Vermont law also requires utilities to meet renewable standards. And they can do that by buying RECs and, quote, retiring them. In other words, retaining those environmental attributes and not reselling them. Ed McNamara is Director of Energy Planning and Resources at the Department of Public Service. When they're selling it, they want the higher price. Retiring RECs for compliance, you want the lower price. So it depends on the position that each individual utility is at. So just like any market, the REC market has winners and losers. Larger utilities in Vermont will be able to more easily absorb the price decline. And McNamara says it's hard to apply hindsight to the Washington Electric Co-op's heavy reliance on REC revenue. He points out the co-op's member owners supported renewable energy projects long before state mandates. And he says the co-op and its ratepayers benefited greatly in the years REC prices were high. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. In some parts of New England, this renewable energy boom is going even further. Towns are committing to transition to 100% renewable energy. Burlington, Vermont, was the first city in the U.S. to get 100% of its energy from renewable sources. Others are following suit, including Hanover, New Hampshire. And there's a useful tool for places looking to make that transition. The Solutions Project has a vision for each state for what a switch to 100% renewables could look like. Stanford professor Mark Jacobson is the co-founder of the Solutions Project. We asked him to join us as part of our series, The Big Switch. Mark Jacobson, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me on the show. You specialize in developing roadmaps for transitioning to 100% clean renewable energy. Could you talk first about some of the challenges for a town or a city or or a state or even a whole country to, to make that kind of a transition? First of all, our plans are really to transition all energy. So that's electricity, transportation, heating, cooling, industry. First of all, to electrify everything and then provide that electricity with clean, renewable energy. So we developed plans for all 50 United States and for now 139 countries of the world and also for individual towns and cities. And these are technical and economic plans. And so we do find in every location that we've looked that it is technically and economically possible to transition to just clean and renewable energy, namely wind and water and solar power. But really getting the information to people is a different story. I mean, we really need people to understand what we've done and to know what what is possible. We really need a transition rapidly, such as 80% conversion of everything worldwide within 12 years by 2030, and 100% no later than 2050, uh, but ideally 2040 or 2045. And so how do you get that rapid of a change? That's really the challenge to do a rapid transition because I think ultimately people will transition to electricity and clean renewable energy because it's it's cheaper, it saves money, it, it creates jobs, it reduces air pollution, reducing health problems, reduces climate problems, creates energy security. So there's so many benefits. But what's to motivate people to transition so quickly? 
And there are some transition that's quick because wind and solar, for example, are now the cheapest forms of electric power in the United States by far. But that doesn't mean that gas plants are just going to go away or even coal plants. So you do need policies put in place. And I think that's the most challenging part is to get policies put in place in every state and locality to speed up a transition to clean renewable energy. What's, you, in your mind, how best to set policy so that we more quickly get to a place in which we're not relying certainly on coal but also on natural gas power plants as opposed to some of the other ways that we can generate renewable energy? Well, so the policies at the, like at the state level, for example, I mean, renewable portfolio standards are, I think, very good ideas. And most states have some renewable portfolio standard, meaning that in their electric power sector, the state has to generate a certain percent of their electricity from clean and renewable energy by a certain year. Now, most recently, well, Hawaii in 2015 passed a 100% law that 100% of their electricity has to be clean and renewable by 2045. California just passed a similar law that has the same deadline of 2045 for 100% effectively clean and renewable energy with 60% by 2030. Vermont has a 70% law by 2035. So there are several states that have aggressive renewable portfolio standards. New York, in fact, has a 50% one. That that would uh, really promote that new energy technologies, new electricity generation would be clean and renewable, and it would also force retirements of existing. But there are also other mechanisms through through subsidies, through incentive systems, by taking away subsidies for, for fossil fuels. I mean, but that's more of a, at the national level. The federal government has a lot of subsidies for fossil fuels through the tax code and through direct subsidies, and we need to eliminate those. But there's a lot that can be done at the state level and also local level. Local, There are over 85 towns and cities across the United States right now that have passed resolutions or regulations requiring 100% clean and renewable energy for their either their city operations or for all their operations. But it's really basically renewable portfolio standards or some kind of direct subsidy system. A few weeks ago on our show, we talked about Kansas and what we here in New England can learn from their switch to wind power. And in many ways, the political conversation there has been motivated less by a concern over climate change than just by economic gains of using wind power. Is this one of the ways, Mark, in in which you feel like we can get people across a very divided nation to get behind the same idea that maybe in some places we want to switch over because we think it's good for Mother Earth and in other places just because it's good for our pocketbook. But one way or another, we can make people to understand that this is something that probably we should be doing. That's right. Uh, Right now, there is a transition underway. It's just not fast enough. And that transition, though, is occurring in a lot of states where you wouldn't think. In fact, nine out of the 10 top wind states are all Republican states in the United States because that's where the wind is fast and it's so cheap. And solar, too, is growing significantly. And it doesn't really matter which party you're affiliated with. It's cheap. There was a public opinion poll in 13 countries, 26,000 people recently, that found that 82% of the people in these 13 countries, including the United States, wanted 100% clean and renewable energy. But the same poll found that only 66% of the people believe that uh, global warming is a severe international problem. So even though that's not good news that 34% of the people didn't believe in global warming, it was significant. 
the fact that more people actually believed in clean renewable energy than global warming is a, is an encouraging sign because that means you don't have to believe in in climate change to want to transition to clean and renewable energy. There are so many other benefits, and, and they actually identified in the poll what some of those benefits were, like it brought more national security, created jobs, and the costs are down, and so it's, there's an economic benefit to that. Are you hopeful we get to this goal that you have in mind? I am. Well, I'm, I'm definitely certain we will get to the goal eventually of getting to entirely, if not virtually entirely, clean and renewable energy. The only question is how long it takes because, yeah, if we just if we don't incentivize things or put policies, strong policies in place, yeah, it could take 50 years to get there, and that's too late for uh, the main problems we're trying to solve. But I, I know it's possible to get there much faster because the technologies are literally here right now. I mean, 95%. There are a few technologies like uh, long-distance aircraft, commercial aircraft running on uh, hydrogen fuel cells and batteries, for example, that aren't there yet, but they're expected to get there by 2035, 2040. And within the next five years, we will have electric commercial aircraft that go at least 1,500 kilometers with 50 passengers. So I know we have the technologies to do virtually everything we need to do right now, and it's really a question of implementing them and putting strong policies in place and educating people about what are the benefits versus costs of doing it. And we'll find that the benefits just so far exceed the costs in terms of job creation, uh, lower direct cost of energy, improved health, energy security, and just the fact that you have, you have more distributed energy so you have less breakdown of the entire grid. Instead of having centralized power plants that can each go down and take out a third of a city, you have more distributed energy that is more secure in general. Mark Jacobson is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University and a director of the university's Atmosphere Energy Program. Mark, thank you so much for these big ideas, and thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. So as we've heard, there are some challenges to 100% renewable energy. Now let's see what that transition looks like in action. NHPR's Brita Green takes us to Lebanon, New Hampshire, a town that's working to reduce energy consumption and increasingly rely on renewables. Devin Wilkie's in his late 20s, and he's excited to be a first-time homeowner. When he was deciding where to put down roots, he chose Lebanon, in part because the city cares about energy just like he does. He knew he was in for some challenges when he invested in a centuries-old fixer-upper, but still, he was surprised to go through about a 1,000 gallons of heating oil last year. I was, only because we had been told something different, but it was somewhat shocking to see just how much oil we were going through. In buying the house, he says he was told he'd use roughly half the fuel he ended up needing, live and learn. So this year, he pre-purchased oil to lock in a better price. And that's not all. This here is the original outside wall. He walks me down to the basement to show some of the renovations he's working um, on. So insulating that is a big part of it. Many of his projects aren't things you'd necessarily show off to house guests. They're things like insulation and patching small holes in walls and floors. But having researched energy issues, Wilkie knows these are the kinds of projects that can make a big dent in his heating and cooling costs down the line and reduce his carbon footprint as well. Ultimately, I'll hope to have electric through solar panels ideally just have it be if not fully net zero as close to net zero as possible wilkie's been involved with neighbors who are organizing around energy issues and city leaders are carrying the torch too that includes tad montgomery lebanon's energy and facilities manager new hampshire has lagged behind 
its neighbors, Massachusetts and Vermont, in the adoption of solar and most other renewable energies. And what we're doing in Lebanon has the potential to just leapfrog. His job to look at the city's energy use is unique in the state. Lebanon is the first, if not the only city, to create such a position. And my hope is that people look at what I'm doing here, what the city is doing here, and say, whoa, yeah, there is actually tremendous value in having people who focus primarily on these issues. There's a lot of towns in New Hampshire that want to reduce their carbon footprint, but it's easier said than done. In Lebanon, they've got a combination of political will, resources, and local experts with years of experience in the technical details of energy policy. That's allowed them to push forward in interesting new ways. First, they're taking a hard look at the city's own energy use, what it's costing to run city infrastructure, city buildings. Montgomery has run or is on track to run energy audits of the city's water and wastewater treatment plants, police station, city hall, and library to see if they could be operated more efficiently. For example, if they could be better insulated. He's also looking to replace existing streetlights with LEDs. That's been done in other communities, but Montgomery wants to even make those lights dimmable to use less energy, depending on traffic patterns, time of day, or even how much moonlight there is. And the city's moving forward with projects to generate energy on city-owned property with solar panels and by tapping into methane gas captured at the landfill. Over time, all these projects will essentially reduce the amount of public money getting spent on energy. But there are other things in the works that are even more innovative and could offer a more direct savings to residents. A critical one is called Lebanon Community Power. One of the objectives of Lebanon Community Power is to create a platform in which people, businesses, organizations can buy and sell energy. The devil is in the details here, and still a lot have to be worked out. But essentially, what the city wants to do, and they're working with the State Public Utilities Commission and Liberty Utilities to do this, is allow residents to purchase power directly from the city, from those solar or landfill projects, or from other residents with solar panels. Those who opt in would also pay variable rates for their electricity over the course of the day. Higher rates when demand is high, lower when demand is low, rather than the fixed rate that's now standard. Montgomery says this will save people money, but also allow them to take charge of what kind of energy they're using to move away from fossil fuels. Okay, so what are we looking at here? So this was the old... Main circuit breaker panel. We had. Um, when you're talking about energy, you often find yourself in basements looking at tanks and wiring. And that's where Greg Ames, another Lebanon resident, led me to show the guts of his home power operation. You have these two wires here, have the power coming down from the solar panels. Ames, like Devin Wilkie, the young homeowner going through a lot of heating oil, is enthusiastic about Lebanon's various energy endeavors. Personally, he's farther along, though, on his energy goals. He's already got the solar panels, a Tesla to get himself around, and he's on a waiting list for a pilot battery energy storage program with Liberty Utilities. He's intrigued by the idea of being able to sell excess power he's generating on his roof back to neighbors for more money than he's currently getting from the utility. Plus, he thinks he could see significant savings if he's able to get off his fixed electric rate. In my personal case, having, you know, having the car, a big chunk of my electric usage can be shifted to nighttime. I can try, I don't have to charge the car the moment I come home. If I shift that charging to, say, midnight or 1 a.m., when electricity is going to be much cheaper, then I could cut my cost of driving in half. To him, it's about sustainability and cost savings, but also about setting an example for what's possible anywhere. Here's Ted Montgomery again, Lebanon's energy manager. If we can get this platform and these things up and running here 
and it becomes replicated, which is our fervent hope, then New Hampshire could be the leader in this area in a, a short number of years. For now, he says, it's about digging in and getting people engaged at the community scale, homeowner by homeowner, street by street. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brita Green. Coming up, we'll climb into the cabin of a crane high atop the hub for a stunning view of Boston. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. New England's largest horse rescue in Windham, Maine, began offering sanctuary to carriage horses way back in 1872. Since then, the Maine State Society for the Protection of Animals has been working hard to rehabilitate as many horses as possible. And as Susan Sharon of Maine Public Radio reports, the nonprofit has been getting help from a devoted group of volunteers, inmates from the women's prison across the street. Whoop, coming through. Hello, Molly. <laughs> Hello, Eddie. The 40 or so abused and neglected horses and the women who've been sentenced to the Maine Correctional Center share something in common, says Maris Bickford, the chief executive officer of the MSSPA. Some of them are broken, yet they can recover and they can be rehabilitated and they can go on to wonderful, happy, productive lives. This past summer, for example, Bickford says law enforcement officers in western Maine seized four horses that were in terrible condition. One required emergency medical attention. And while the state launched an investigation, the society was asked to take them in. There was nowhere else for them to go. All four horses when they came in were pretty much skeletons with fur, really, really um, shockingly thin. These horses... I think without intervention probably would have been dead within a fairly short time, you know, a couple of weeks. It took the horses several months to start putting on weight and getting back in shape. But Bickford says they are lively, well-trained, and good candidates for adoption now. Dozens of volunteers help nurse them back to health, including Sarah Fushwans. She's been working at the farm for five months. Grooming is one of her favorite parts of the job. So this is like a curry comb, and it kind of massages the skin and loosens all the hair and the dirt. Fushwans is a minimum custody inmate whose sentence on drug charges won't be up for two more years. She says she didn't have much experience around horses when she first showed up at the barn, and initially she just wanted to escape the monotony of being in the prison across the street. But as a person in recovery, she says, taking care of these horses has been more physically and emotionally rewarding than she ever could have imagined. It just feels so good to give back. It's something that I never really did in my spare time, and I never knew how good it felt, and it's something I definitely want to continue doing. I do know that. I was really nervous at first, but I fell in love with the horse, and I just love coming over here every chance I get. Like Fushwans, Carissa Buckowitz hadn't been around horses much either. And like so many other women inmates, she's also serving time for a drug-related crime. With the good time she's earned through volunteering, she'll be getting out in June. Until then, she's spending time with Tavish, an older horse she describes as calm and sweet. Their bond, she says, and the support of the other volunteers and staff has been transformative. It made me appreciate life. I really did, like um, knowing that this place is so wonderful to give them a second chance and to give also us a second chance. It just really made me appreciate everything. 
not take anything for granted. You know, everyone needs love, whether you're a horse or a person. Warden Scott Landry says the partnership between the prison and the horse rescue has worked out so well that there are now as many as eight women inmates volunteering several hours a day at the barn, seven days a week. But it did take a leap of faith from the Department of Corrections and a change in prison policy. Traditionally, minimum custody women are not permitted to work without a correctional employee directly supervising them. In the policy, we made it an exception, so the minimum custody women are able to come here and work without our staff necessarily supervising. Maris Bickford says the MSSPA wouldn't be operating at its current level without the inmates' assistance. And as far as the women are concerned, there's no better way to spend their time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. At the height of the Boston skyline, there's a job site where workers are nearing completion on the third tallest building in the city. But standing even higher than that building is a crane whose operator is responsible for lifting materials to the building's 61 floors. WBUR's Simone Rios journeyed to this highest vista in the city of Boston to introduce us to the crane operator and his perch. It's just after 6 o'clock on a recent workday morning, and it's a blistering 17 degrees on the thermometer. I'm standing among two dozen workers, huddled in hoodies and hard hats in the pre-dawn dark, waiting to take a service elevator up the side of the building. I'm headed up to 61, the highest floor in the towering new luxury development known as One Dalton. Hi, I'm Brett. Hey, Simon. Nice to meet you, Simon. Good to meet you, too. At the top, I meet Brett St. Germain, a crane operator who's been on this job for the past two and a half years. I'm hoping to see the crane in action, but St. Germain says this morning's high winds could be an obstacle. I have an alarm system at 31 miles an hour. I get a yellow alert, and at 44 miles an hour, it tells me to shut that crane off. Because then you can have mechanical failure. There's not a risk of toppling or anything. Uh, No, they say it'll... It'll withstand 100 miles an hour before it will physically blow over. With no hurricanes in sight, we head toward the crane. So just how does one get into the cab of a crane more than 800 feet off the ground? At the very top of One Dalton, there's an aluminum catwalk about the size and heft of an extension ladder jutting out into the void. It's a bridge to the crane. The handrails are made of pine lumber, and the sides are just blue plastic mesh draped over the rails. Before we step out, I turn to WBUR photographer Jesse Costa. Afraid of heights, man? Yeah, a little bit. I look down off the side of the bridge, 61 stories of space between me and the street, then decide it's better to keep my eyes focused ahead. On the other side, we're still more than 80 feet below the crane's cab. We hulk over the steel tubing into the center of the tower and start climbing up the first of five ladders, each taking us 16 and a half feet higher. The air feels thinner up here. I'm so winded, I stop to rest after each level. The wind is punishing to exposed skin. I forgot to bring a hat, and my ears feel like glass. Jesse says his fingers feel like they're burning. Finally, after seven minutes of climbing, we make it to the top. We climb into the cab, and there it is, the sunrise and the whole greater Boston area on display. The Prudential building fills your field of vision in one direction. 
To the north, you can see all of Cambridge. To the west, you can look down onto the field in Fenway Park. And to the east are the Boston Harbor Islands, every one of which you can see. For Brett St. Germain, who's been running cranes for 40 years, it's all in a day's work. Like, soon as it, it seems uh, dull and mundane that you see the same thing every day, you'll see a morning where you'll see a sunrise or something that's unbelievable, you know what I mean? Or uh, some of the storms that come through, and I get the bird's eye view for it. St. Germain takes out his phone to show a photo of the crane's boom, lit up in green and touching the moon. Someone caught the moon at the perfect angle, so it looks like my boom is touching. So I texted my friends, oh, I finally, I reached the moon, you know, I I touched the moon. I asked St. Germain if he feels a sense of ownership when looking at the buildings he's worked on over the years. Yes, and my wife will make fun of me if I say, you know, point out a particular, oh, I built that. She's like, yeah, all by yourself, yep. All by yourself. Four years after breaking ground, one Dalton builder, Suffolk Construction, says the building is nearing completion. The Four Seasons Hotel on the lower floors is expected to open in April, followed by luxury condominiums. At this stage, St. Germain is nearly finished, hoisting the 12-foot glass windows that serve as the building's exterior walls. He lifts the glass with the crane and places it so workers can position the panels into their frames. But the giant glass rectangles can act like kites. This morning, it's too windy. It's a slow morning for the crane operator. But finally, a foreman radios in with a request for the crane. Morning, bro. Good morning, Chris. Just got a bag and a buggy. I want to say. 10-4. I actually have to do some work. <laughs> the whole city seems to turn beneath him as St. Germain rotates the crane to pick up a bin of construction debris. As the workday gets underway, I start to climb back down six stories, a trip St. Germain has made thousands of times on this and other sites. And tomorrow morning, he'll be up again at 3.30, hoping to get ahead of the traffic on his way to the top of Boston. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simon Rios. You should really go to nextnewengland.org to see pictures by WBUR's Jesse Costa. It's quite a sight. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And we had help this week from Ryan Roberts. Special thanks to Ellen Grimm and Laura Pinoy of NHPR's The Exchange. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.